for a number of weeks now, in fact I guess it's been every Sunday in the month of June, we have been centering our thoughts upon the subject of the covenants. And we're doing this uh, sort of in a stream of consciousness way on my part. Um, I've just been going from thing to thing that I thought was significant and important, important, reigning, uh, 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 moving from all these matters of concern I put on the board here. What I decided to do is to try to give some shape and substance to what we've been doing and put it into the categories of places we've been and places where we hope to go, at least to bring us up to where we are right now. And you'll see on the top here, I, I have a question. And the question is, what are the covenants designed to do? And that's really what I want to do this morning. And though we've sort of mentioned a part of that last Lord's Day, uh, I want to give a fuller uh, account of what the covenants in the Bible are in fact designed to do. Why does God use covenants? What is the purpose of it? And um, so I want to address that question. Um, but we got into this whole matter because of a question of controversy that was raised uh, during the Sunday, our first Sunday of the month, when we have questions and answers. Mike raised the question about a controversy in the matter of things he saw on the internet where there was a man, and there's lots of people. Uh, I encountered it at the Reformed Church when we had the Reformation Sunday. Somebody approached me and said, well, I don't understand why you're here on a Reformation celebration. Be sure Baptists and Baptists aren't Reformed. I understand in the strict sense that's the case, but hey, Baptists were around in the 16th century, and they were rooting hard for Luther. Uh, the only problem with what uh, the Baptists thought about the Lutheran Reformation was not that they didn't enter into what was going on, is they didn't think it went far enough. That was, that's the problem, is that uh, they didn't move away from the old papal stuff like infant baptism, that's how we would see it, as part of the Roman Catholic Church that didn't get reformed and should have been reformed. But, um, you know, there were political things that happened, and we mentioned some of those things. And um, So in a strict sense, you might say that the churches that came out of the Reformation, if you define it, as the churches that hold to the three form of unity of the Reformed Churches, the Christian Reformed Church and Reformed Church of America that has the Belgian Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, and the Synods of Dort. Um, we don't hold to those things, although we appreciate those things, and we'll use them from time to time in our teaching. But yet in the points uh, with respect to baptism, we don't agree. But the point of baptism is in the reformers of the 16th century, really centered around the question of whether or not baptism takes the place of circumcision. And the whole argument, well, Abraham's seed was circumcised, so believers and their seed are to be baptized. Well, I disagree with both of those things. I don't think that circumcision is succeeded by baptism. I think circumcision is succeeded by the circumcision of the heart. That was the whole purpose of the outward sign of circumcision. It pointed to the inner circumcision of the heart. I know it's placed as a, quote, covenant sign, um, but yet when I look at um, Colossians 2, for instance, where Paul mentions both circumcision and he mentions baptism, he's speaking about the circumcision of the heart in that passage. He's not talking about the circumcision of the flesh. He's, uh, and, and, and baptism is, and both of those things are really speaking about the answer of, of faith in the heart of the believer, what God has done for believers. And so uh, I disagree with that. And then we also disagree that we can make a strict equation between Abraham and his seed and believers and their seed. 
Abraham's seed is a very technical definition in the scriptures. The definition really is the covenant people of God. Under the old covenant, they were Abraham's physical seed. In the new covenant, it's his spiritual seed. In the new covenant, it's those who are of faith are the seed of Abraham. Galatians chapter 3. And so I'm all forgiven covenant signs to all the seed of Abraham, but I see the seed of Abraham under the new covenant as those who have, have faith in Jesus. And so you know, we wait till our children to believe, and then we circumcise, we don't circumcise them, I'm sorry, we do not do that. We baptize them in a, in a ceremony which I hope is meaningful for them because they know why they're doing it. It's not just something being done to them, it's something that they are doing in professing their faith and their union with Christ in the waters of baptism. But that's the, the historical differences. And um, again, to say that we're not reformed when, hey, covenant theology was not around in the 16th century. That's a 17th century thing. And that's what we endeavored to do with re- reference to history. The history of the thing is actually that when the, re- the, the, the post-Reformation generation, people after the Reformation, talking 17th century, when they began to talk about, quote, a covenant theology, when they began to talk about a covenant of works in the Garden of Eden. They began to talk about a covenant of redemption in the councils of the Trinity. They began to talk about a covenant of grace that's some uh, something above time that God administers through different covenants in time. That's their language. That's what they were talking about in the Westminster Confession of Faith. That didn't exist in the time of the Reformation. You don't hear Calvin talking that way. You don't see it in the Belgian Confession, and you don't see it in the Heidelberg Catechism. It gets into the Westminster Confession of Faith, because that's 1644. And that began to develop in Holland as a result of a movement of, of, of opposition to the Reform Creed that had to do with Arminianism, questioning the decree of God that was taught in the Reformed churches, and also questioning the matter of the extent of the atonement, the Amoraldian thing. And so we, we discussed all that. And, um, you know, I just want to say, in saying those things, that this came later, this is something that doesn't really reflect the state of things in Scripture, I'm not rejecting what they sought to do. Uh, I don't think that what they did was unimportant. I mean, I think that there's insights in their doctrine of the covenant that I agree with. Uh, particularly in the way, way it got developed in this, amongst the Reformed and the Baptists was that whatever they were saying about covenant theology, they were saying there's a unity of the plan of salvation. That we get saved only one way. That's true of Abraham. That's true of Isaac and Jacob. It's true of Joseph. It's true of Moses. It's true of the people that entered into the land. By faith, they were saved. In all generations, that is the mark of the people of God. Um, that is the mark of um, true covenant f- fellowship with God and loyalty to God. And in fact, when the people of Israel violated the covenant of Sinai and they lived in apostasy and idolatry, they received not covenant blessings, they received the covenant curse. They received exile into Babylon and the many other countries that took them over for a period of time in the book of the Judges. God met them in judgment. And so the mark of the true covenant people of God, you know, when you think of the New Jerusalem that's going to have the 12 apostles as the foundation stones and the 12 patriarchs as the gates of the city, that um, those uh, 
people that are comprised, whether they were saved during the patriarchal times, whether they were saved during the apostolic days, whatever time they were saved in, they were saved the same way. And that's what covenant theology is seeking, at least in part, to say that I think is helpful, that's true, and uh, hence I don't reject it. The, the basic reasons they come up with this unity. I think it's expressed better just by sticking with biblical language, but that's, a, that's an argument we could have. Well, we moved away from the historical things. We, and then we began to look at the questions of textual analysis. That's the important thing. What exactly do we find in the Bible? Now, one of the problems, I think, with covenant theology is that because they were looking to use this thing to uh, counter different things that was an attack on their creed, um, they really never did a deep dive into the scriptures. I think that's really the problem. And I think that even in our own day, we just make assumptions. We come to the Bible with a theological view, firmly planted like glasses on our face. And so when we read the scriptures, it's through the lenses of that theological Understanding that we find in our confessions and where we find it in our creeds. And again, I'm not saying the confessions and creeds are not good. They're helpful. They're needful. We need to confess our faith. We need to confess our faith fully. It's good to have confessional subscription. It's good to have a history. It's good to have a sense of unity with the church of past generations. We're not the first generation that's come to study the Bible. So we have a solidarity with those folks. But also, we're not... You know, Spurgeon, when he, when his congregation, the Metropolitan Tabernacle, adopted the London Confession of Faith, they said one of the things: it's not to be, it's not to be fet- a fetter. It's not to be you know chains that bind us. It's not to be something that ties us up <laughs> and, and says you can't move. No, we need to be able to move, and we need to be able to move in biblical directions to do good Bible reading clear investigation of the actual state of things in scripture that's why I call it textual analysis we analyze what's there in God's word and when we analyze things in God's word well we're first of all going to come up with a definition of covenant that's a biblical definition I know when I was first saved and first learned things about covenant I was told a covenant is an agreement between two or more parties that sounds an awful lot like a modern contract an agreement between two or more parties I think a covenant is a little bit different. A covenant, as you see it in the scriptures, is an oath-sworn promise. It's a promise that you make, and the promise ought to be good. But the problem is we live in a fallen world and people break their promises all the time. And so what a covenant does is a covenant puts another layer of commitment, of solemnization of the promise, in that you take a vow, you take an oath, There's an oath-sworn promise. And the amazing thing about God's covenant in the Bible, Hebrews 6 tells us, is that when God could swear by no greater, he, what did he do? He swore by himself, saying, blessing, I will bless you. He swore by himself. What in the world does that mean, that he swore by himself? Well, when you swear by your mother's grave, or you swear by, Jesus said, the temple, or you swear by the, you know, the gold of the temple, and all these oaths that people took on things they thought was really sacred, and in essence is to say, I really, really mean it, and that's why I'm swearing on my mother's grave. I really, really mean it. That's why I'm swearing by the temple. 
And of course, you saying I really, really mean it, it really throws your credibility away because really your, your word should be your bond in normal circumstances. But people are looking at you as if you're lying through your teeth and you know they're looking at you as though you're lying through, the te- through their te- your, te- your teeth. So you make this really, really s- severe statement about what you're swearing on. Well, swearing on your mother's grave is not going to affect your mother who's in her grave and the eternity she enjoys either in God's presence or apart from God's presence. It's not going to affect your mother. It's just something you're looking to do to uh, take people, so the people will, will, will believe you're telling the truth. Well, that's the idea. But in the ancient world, it went a step more um, strikingly graphic. Let's put it that way. Um, we saw this scene in, in Genesis chapter 15 last week when Abraham had a question with respect to the promise of God. God had given him promise. So he had promise in chapter 12. I'll give you this land. Look to the east, the west, the north, and the south. God says I'm going to give you this. Um, God says I'm going to give you a seed. He says I'm going to give you a blessing uh, that uh, through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God gives him these words of promise. But it's not until you get to chapter 15 that you find Abraham having a little bit of skittishness about the promise. This has been a long time. He left Ur of Chaldees, you know, 20 years ago, 25 years ago. Where's the child? Where's the land? Don't possess any of it. And yet God says, walk before me, be thou perfect. That's in chapter 17. But in chapter 15, he says, I am your shield, your exceeding great reward. And then Abraham says, O Lord God, what will you give me? I continue childless. The heir of my, my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And God says, it's not that man. It's, it's, it's your own son, the heir of your own flesh. And he brought him outside to look at the heavens, number the stars if you're able. So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and it was counted him for righteousness. So he was a believer. Long before he got circumcision, that's Paul's argument in Romans 4, he was a believer. He was justified. He was counted as righteous before God. And yet, in verse 8, this is question. He said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Now, he believed God. And it was accounted to him for righteousness. But yet this faith was, at this point, maybe not as robust as it should be. <laughs> he was not as strong as it should be. It's, um, it's a faith that believes, and yet, uh, perhaps, uh, maybe, how shall I know that I will possess it? And then God does this amazing thing. And this is an actual covenant ceremony. We read about it in um, Jeremiah 34. You also see it in ancient covenant documents of the ancient world among the Canaanites, Babylonians, Assyrians. And again, the 17th century guys didn't have access to those things. That's all modern archaeological digs and finds that give us to understand that there was, in fact, a covenant ritual. And when you had a, a king that would uh, become an overlord to a lesser king, and they would come at peace with one another. He would be willing to sue for terms. There were promises that were given. There were um, obligations that were laid upon the lesser party, and also obligations upon the greater party. I will be your protector. You know, the greater king says, "I will keep you in peace. I will keep you in safety. You, know, you, you can have your fields. You can have your, your your crops. I will not invade." He's making promises, and the 
Uh, lesser party is saying, well, I agree to this, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to submit to you, and I'm going to look to you, and I'm going to be obedient to you. And, and so there's all these agreements. And then what happens is that it's usually the lesser party. They take these animals, and they cut them in two. They cut them in two. And they put the pieces of the dead animals, and they create a pathway through it. And then the person who's making the pledge to the greater king passes through. And in passing through, as Jeremiah 34 tells us, you really call it a curse upon yourself that you would be like the pieces of the dead animals. Is that going to make you have a sense of the solemnization of the promises that you're making? That I should be like these dead animals? That was the purpose of it. The purpose of it was to give certainty and assurance. It was to solemnize the thing. It was to take promise and ranch it up a bit and say, this is a promise that I really, 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 really mean because I don't want to be like these dead animals. But the amazing thing, what God does in this case, Abraham separates the animals and then God causes a deep sleep to fall upon him and it's not Abraham that passes through the pieces. It's the flaming torch and the burning oven, I think it's called. It's, it's God. It is a theophany. God goes through the pieces. When God can swear by nothing greater than himself, he swears by himself. He says, I can sooner cease to be than I will fail to keep my promise to Abraham. And that's why the, the writer of the Hebrews says, by these two things in which it's impossible for God to lie. <laughs> He can't lie in his promise and he can't lie in his oath and he can't die. So it's an absolutely certain thing that what God promises his people by covenant, you can rest assured, you're going to see it. It's going to happen. It's a done deal. God makes it certain. And that's one of the big reasons that these covenants exist, is to give strong hope to the covenant party, the one who is in covenant with God. God has promised me this, and not only that, he's sworn to me. Surely this will occur. This is a done deal. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus says. And he says that to underscore the reality of what he's about to speak. And God does that with both his words and, and, and this matter of a covenant arrangement, a covenant ritual. Uh, solemnizing this thing and giving strong hope to the people involved in God's covenant that God's word will be performed. He is the God who watches over his word to perform it. But that's not all. That's not all. Um, What are the covenants designed to do? Well, in part, it's designed to give strong hope to us that God's promise is good, it's sure, it's certain, it's an you can bank on it take it to the bank God's promises are are true but there's something else that is going on here and I kind of gave you a bit of an indication last week but I hadn't really thought it out as well as I have during the past week and that is that God does something very interesting with Abram he causes a deep sleep to fall on him and I mentioned it last week if you are a careful reader of your Bible, you will know there was a time that God did that before. And that's when he made the woman and brought her to the man. He caused a deep sleep to fall upon 
Adam. Now, the deep sleep brought a vision to Abraham. Did the deep sleep bring a vision to Adam? Um, this is a question I've been pondering. It's kind of a different view of things to adopt that. But I know when I first became a Christian, people told me that um, men and women have different numbers of ribs. <laughs> and um, I found out, nah, nah. It's a nice story. And it's a nice story that somebody was trying to use to give me confidence that the Bible's true. The Bible knew anatomy long before the anatomy people today found out. How many, nope, it's wrong. It's a nice story, but it's, it's predicated on a lie. But it's, it's not a lie that's that's um, not being told. If you go to your Google, <laughs> your computer, and you put in Google how um, how men um, no men and women have different and leave it blank ribs come up every time, and you're going to see that there's people that Google this stuff because they've been told this. And it's a widespread belief among Christians that men and women have different numbers of ribs. Well, it isn't true. And um, the important thing of that account in Genesis is that Adam would know that Eve was bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. She was taken out of me. That's how near and dear she is to me. It it, it expresses the, the functioning of the relationship, how it's meant to go. Now, the, uh, Matthew Henry had, had it right when he said that she wasn't taken from his head that she would rule him nor from his feet that he would trample over her but from his rib near to his heart close to his side that she would be his partner in life so it, it really is the point of it is that Adam could wake up from that dream and however it was done whether it was in a vision or actually God did this surgery took a rib out and formed a, a, a woman uh, he would re- react like he did. This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. That's really the important thing. So the other thing is not an important thing at all. It's an interesting thing to, to talk about though. But the point of it is that you have a deep sleep that falls upon someone and something occurs that solves a problem. What was the problem? Well, everything that God said was good at the creation account in chapter uh, 2 and uh, I think it's the end of chapter 1 in chapter 2 he says it's not good that man should be alone and he causes his deep sleep to fall upon the man and then he brings about what turns a not good situation into bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh she shall be let's rejoice and celebrate he, he, he has his Eve he has his woman his problem of loneliness is over and it's gone he now has a companion in his life and so God solves a problem. But what happened with Abraham? Abraham has a problem. How shall I know that this will be so? That's his problem. And God puts him to sleep and solves the problem. Gives him this vision. He understands God's intention. Then it's certain. And God can sooner cease to be. And so that seems to me to be something of a, a parallel between these things. But it's not just... It's not just that you have a parallel between the creation narrative of Eve and the creation of a covenant. And really that's the first time a redemptive covenant is mentioned. A saving covenant is mentioned. A covenant that really says, I will be a God to you and you will be my people. I'm going to bless you and I'm going to do all these things for you. But there is, between Abraham and the biblical narrative with respect to him, 
and the creation account and following, uh, um, there's a connection that to me is so unmistakable that um, I'm going to try to just draw this to you, draw it with you in this way. Um, a lot of times people would, when I first learned this stuff, um, Genesis 1 to 11 is said to be primeval history, right? They have primeval history. These are the the first things. So this is a history of the first things, of how things begin. Beginning of heaven and earth, and the beginning of uh, sin, the beginning of uh, you know the people that uh, were shepherds and uh, made pottery and made uh, uh, instruments, and you know you have all that stuff. And so you have a lot of primeval history. Uh, and then in, in 12, um, really to the end, is the period of the patriarchs. And the way this tends to go is that Christians read the primeval history and say, okay, that is for that period of time, and now we have this new thing that comes about in patriarchs, and so we don't really see much of a relationship between the two, except maybe this set up stuff for this period of time. But in actuality, when you think about it, there is a much closer tie between these two sections. And let me just give you some of the ways this happens. It happens in the genealogies. That's the first thing. In the genealogies. When you have the genealogy in chapter 5, you have ten generations from Adam to who? Ten generations later, who comes along? Noah. Noah. And then after the flood, you have Noah and his sons, and you have in chapter 10 an account of those generations, or maybe nine, the generations of Shem, I think is what you have there. And then this is from Seth to uh, Adam to Noah. Then you have from uh, Shem to Abraham, what do you think you have there? Anybody want to say ten generations? You'd be right if you did. Ten generations. So this is structured in a way that you have ten generations prior to the flood, ten generations that brings you from creation to flood, ten generations that brings you from flood to Abraham. Now what happens when you move ten generations from Adam to Noah? We have the destruction of the creation that you read about in chapter 1. There's the uncreation that takes place. You have, and in fact, even it mentions the things in the opposite order. It has an order that God created things, the six days, and then it has the way in which things got destroyed, and it goes in the opposite direction. And so there's the, the point of uncreation. And what happens after the flood? Noah and his family get out of the ark, and what happens? Well, you have the first covenant, don't you? And you have the first covenant, as I think we saw some weeks back, that takes place because the problem really didn't get solved. God brought a flood because great evil had happened in the world. Violence was everywhere. And the thoughts of the intents of the heart of man was only evil continually. Right? But yet after the flood, God says the same thing. He knows that the thoughts to the intent of the heart from his youth up is evil. So 
The problem didn't get solved by the flood. The flood showed the reality of divine judgment. And it's interesting that when Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3 says, the scoffers, the mockers come along and they say, where's the sign of his coming? His answer is this, they will willingly forget. They forget all about the flood. They forget about divine judgment that took place at the flood. And so Peter says, you know, God has done this before. And he's going to judge again. Um, but the point of it is that the problem still remains. And since that problem remains, every generation of the descendants from Noah on are going to wonder, is this the year God's going to bring another flood? <laughs> Is this the year God's going to wipe us all away again? And this creation, this covenant with creation is God's oath-sworn pledge not to bring another flood. And he's going to put the sign of the rainbows so that, well, I mean, he doesn't need to see a rainbow to know the thoughts and intents of his heart, but we need to see that rainbow. Because when the flood, when the, when the rains come, and you, know, you think that maybe this is a sign where you get wiped out again, <laughs> The sky brightens, you see a rainbow, you remember God's promise. So there will be seed time and harvest, there will be the regularity of the seasons, there will be the continuance of life upon the earth. And so God gives promise, and it solves the problem of, I mean, he already brought a flood, showed he's a God who, of, who brings judgment upon sinners, he will do it again at the end of the world, he doesn't need to do it again. And so you have the memory of the flood, but you also have the memory of a God who continues life upon the earth, year after year, season upon season, to give praise and blessing to his name. It's not that we deserve such things. It's that God himself has promised it, and God has sworn by an oath he will keep his promise with respect to some measure of regularity that will exist in this world for ourselves and for our children. Okay? What do you call that when... Noah and his seed and his and his, his family come out of the ark, and God brings this covenant, or He forms this covenant, and He does it with such words as this. In um, chapter nine and verse one, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, "Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth." Where'd you hear that before? Hmm? You, you, you said Abraham and you're right it is Abraham but it's also creation itself it's Genesis 1 God blessed them and said be fruitful multiply fill the earth and subdue and have dominion over it now the only thing that you don't have here is subdue it and, 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 and um, have dominion over it but you have the blessing God blessed them just like he did in Genesis 1 with Adam and Eve he blessed them and he said be fruitful multiply fill the earth would you like to call that a new creation? I mean, God's starting over, right? He's winding the clock and creation begins again in Noah. There is a new creation. And it relates to covenant. God makes a covenant. Go to chapter 12. Now, I'm going to tell you this, that in the Hebrew Bible, you have the word for blessing, baruch, or baruch. That was necessarily a reference to a president that we recently had. This is, baruch is, is probably, a baracha is the female version. And um, that word for blessing, 
occurs in the first 11 chapters five times in the context of God blessing something. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. God blessed them. He blessed the Sabbath day. He made it holy. God's blessing creation. He blesses the seventh day. He blesses Noah. He blesses his family. Five times this matter of the blessing is mentioned. When you come to chapter 12, the call of Abraham, you know what? In the first three verses, you have God blessing five times. You have God blessing five times. The Lord God said to Abraham, Go from your country, this is chapter 12 and verse 1, from your kindred and from your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in all the families of the earth, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So fivefold blessing. God blessed him and said, What did he say? Be fruitful and multiply. What do we read in chapter 15? Chapter 15 and verse 5, he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heavens and number the stars, if you're able to number him. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abraham was blessed of God. And he was going to be fruitful, and he was going to multiply. He would have descendants as great as the stars of the heavens and the sand of the sea in another passage. So there's a great seed, a great progeny that's going to come from Abraham. He's going to be fruitful. He's going to, be, he's going to multiply. But then it also says, fill the earth and subdue it. Well, God gave him a land grant, didn't he? He promised him the land of Canaan. His descendants would occupy that land. And that's at the end of chapter 15. The end of chapter 15. When the sun had gone down, it was dark in verse 17. And the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch passed through these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I will give this land. To your offspring I will give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, and the land of the Canaanites. And what happened with respect to that land? Well, for 400 years they're going to spend in, in Egypt, and then he's going to call them back And when the iniquity, iniquity of the Amorite is full. And then he's going to go in, and what are they going to do? They're going to subdue it. And they're going to have dominion over it. What am I saying to you? I'm saying that creation is being re- replicated once again. It began in Genesis 1. A new creation took place with Noah, and a new creation takes place with Abraham and his seed. And again, God enters into covenant. And so, again, I said to you that I don't think create covenant is a creation concept in the sense that when God created Adam and Eve and put them in the Garden of Eden, there was really a need for a covenant. I don't I don't see a need for the covenant before sin comes into the world before the real problem of man's separation from God this rupture of man's relationship to God comes, um, comes about um, and I believe what a covenant is, is, is seeking to do it's seeking to bring man back to God it's seeking to function in a way that would repair what was lost through sin in other words it's looking to restore creation it's looking to restore man's place in creation. 
And hence, that's why you have a covenant that's given with, with Abraham, with these promises of creation coming again. And then with respect to the land, it's an interesting thing. Um, you remember back in chapter 27, I think it was, that Isaac and his herdsmen had a problem with uh, the herdsmen of Abimelech? Remember that? And we read about a covenant that they made there. That's like a, a, a covenant uh, that doesn't involve God. It just involves, involves people. And, and, and the problem was there was tension. There was strife. There was danger of a war. Abimelech felt it. He said to Isaac, get out of here. Get away from me. You've gotten too strong for me. Um, and when they were going about uh, digging, digging wells, they needed the water. And then the others would come and fill it up again. There was a need to avoid the, the war. And so they entered into this pact, this peace treaty. And it's a covenant. The covenant is a peace treaty. Now, it's interesting that the same conditions of strife with herdsmen also took place earlier. And the thing you need to realize, if we're careful readers of the Bible, is that there's so many of these interconnections that sometimes we don't even see. We're just reading too fast. Now, I, I think it's okay to read the Bible quickly to get through its contents when you read it the first couple of times. But the time really comes where you've got to slow it down a bit. You know, learn Hebrew so you get really slow reading it. You can't read it very fast if you're trying to do it in Hebrew. So you, you, then you take note of really what's going on. And in chapter 13, you have Abram in verse 2, um, after he come back up from Egypt. Um, he's rich in livestock and silver and gold. Verse 2, he journeys from the Negev, that's the desert in the south, as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been in the beginning. And uh, Lot, his nephew, who went with Abraham, also had flocks and herds and tents so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. Maybe there wasn't enough water. Their possessions were so great they couldn't dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. It gets repeated later on. There's strife. Yeah, what happens with Abraham and Lot? There's no mention of a covenant. The man's his nephew. <laughs> man's his nephew. Chapter 14 is going to go to war to rescue him from the kings uh, of, of, the, of the land that had taken Lot captive. This is his kin. There's no danger of a war. And so there is a peaceful settling of the difference. Verse 8, let Abraham said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your, herds, your herdsmen and my herdsmen. We're kinsmen. We're kinsmen. You don't need to have covenant with kinsmen. I mean, at least not one that you make your kid pass through severed pieces and say if you don't keep the covenant, you're going to be like, you're going to be dead meat. You don't do that. You don't do a biblical covenant with, with kinsmen. And then he says, it's not the whole land before you. Separate yourself from me. And if you take the left hand, I'll go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, I will go to the left. And Abraham says, Lot, it's your choice. You're my nephew. I love you. (laughs) This man is not a covetous man. This man is a follower of Yahweh. He's a follower of the 
the God who would be the God of Israel. And he gives Lot first dibs. And when Lot got first dibs, what does he do? He lifted up his eyes. He saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere. Listen to this. Like the garden of the Lord. I was like the land of Egypt to the direction of Zohar. But there is this sense that this land, this good land, this land flowing with milk and honey, as it's going to be described later on, is this land that's Eden restored. It's the garden. It's coming back to the garden of God. You see it in the book of Isaiah, chapter 50, I believe it is, where the people that were taken into captivity in Babylon and the land was not uh, farmed and the land became abandoned it became desert land it became a land that the jackals and the wild beasts inhabited Um, in chapter 50 of Isaiah the promise I mean there's a number of these promises in Isaiah that speaks to the issue of the way in which God's going to take these waste places, these desert places, these wilderness places, and he's going to make it bloom. He's going to make it bloom. Uh, It's actually 51. 51 in verse 3. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places. All the places that have been abandoned. All the places that are desert land. It's wasteland. It's wilderness land. And makes her wilderness like Eden. Like Eden. Her desert like the garden of the Lord. God's in the business of making gardens. He's in the business of restoring creation. And in these covenant relationships, there is the restoration of the blessings of creation. So covenants are remedial. Covenants are restorative. It's meant to restore what was lost through sin. And the interesting thing about what you see even here with regard to Lot's choice, I mean, Lot wasn't the one through whom the covenant would come, it was Abraham. And Abraham shows his grace and he shows his faith in, in, in God's provision, saying, Lot, you, you take the best land if you'd like, and Lot does. He didn't say, well, I'll give, I'll give a place to my elder uncle. No, he says, I'm going to take the best place. He said, I could, I'm going to do it. <laughs> so, and basically he shows that he wasn't a really faithful man because, again, it tells us a lot lingered. He lingered in Sodom. He had a hard time leaving. You know, we're told to remember Lot's wife, but also remember Lot. There were certain things about Lot that weren't all that exemplary. And the interesting thing is that where Lot went is he went eastward. He went eastward. And what's the significance of that? Well, because in all of the directional references in the earlier chapters, every sinner went eastward. (laughs) Remember Cain. He went eastward to the land of Nod. And says, away from the presence of the Lord. He went eastward, away from the presence of the Lord. And the interesting thing is that when the tabernacle and the temple was built... Its entrance was from the east. It's, it's like you're coming back. You're coming back out from the presence of the Lord, back to the presence of the Lord. And of course, in the tabernacle in the temple, it was the Lord that was in the furthest westward end, and you were approaching him from the east. Interesting. When God sent them into captivity for um, in Babylon, it was east they went, right? 
And then you see the vision of Ezekiel's temple and, and God comes from the east and he comes back to the temple. Um, you have all these creation references. You have all these references to the fact what God's doing is he's bringing us back. He's bringing us back to the garden. He's bringing us back into the blessings that were designed for us through creation. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, bless them and said. Um, and you see it even in the New Testament. Why does the book of Acts mention, and the Lord multiplied the church? It's be fruitful and multiply. The church was growing, and creation language is used to describe it. The church was being fruitful, and it was multiplying. Um, Paul, Paul can speak about the, the, the work of the... Uh, uh, I'm sorry, it's the prayer of... Um, it's either Colossians 1 or Philippians 1, and the natural quote is slipping my mind. So I just want to go back there just a moment. And uh, you see how this creation language is used... Um, yeah, you see it in Colossians. Colossians uh, 1 and uh, verse 5. Well, verse 4, he says, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you've heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, is indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. It's bearing fruit and increasing. It's being fruitful and it's multiplying. Um, the Philippian letter, chapter 1 uses uh, the same language. Um, in verse uh, 9, and is my prayer that your, uh, your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve what's excellent. Verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness. Again, all these references to creation in the new covenant exist. Why? Because if any man be in Christ, behold a new creation. God has been in the business for throughout all biblical time of new creation. A new creation was designed to come through Noah. Didn't really work out. Though he did plant the vineyard. He got drunk by the fruit of it. Didn't really work out well. Um, and he designed to do work of new creation in Abraham. And they were to be a blessing to the nations. How did that go? <laughs> <laughs> they were worshipping the God of the nations before it all came to an end. But in Christ, this new creation work brings the blessing. It brings the blessing of Abraham to the nations. It brings the blessing of Abraham to all who believe. It makes the church to become fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And just because we're not seeing it so much in the United States, doesn't mean it's not happening in the world you know, you read about all these accounts of when missionaries, or when, um, when imperial uh, uh, nations that ruled over parts of Africa actually left, and Christians thought, oh, that means we don't have the governments to protect us. You know, there may have been 10 million people, on, Christians on the African continent, uh, back in the you know, height of the colonial days. What's there now? Estimates of half a, from a quarter to half a million professing Christians on the continent of Africa. I mean, the stuff that's going on in the world that we don't even know about because it's in countries with languages we don't speak. I mean, God's doing His work in the world. The church is, is advancing in the world. Um, yes, persecution exists. And opposition exists. 
but it existed in the book of Acts and so the church is multiplying even when there's opposition those two concurrent realities always occur whenever the church is on is advancing there'll always be opposition there'll always be persecution but yet it's even through the persecution that God brings to his people there is an advance this is a new creation people God's forming a new creation so creation so okay we're back to this question what are the covenants designed to do and last week we saw it give strong hope to those who are the inheritors of the promise right but it's also designed to restore to restore creation to its God intended purposes when God does that he enters into covenant and he gives his pledge and promises to do that work to bring restoration to bring back the blessing of creation to bring back the fruitfulness and the multiplication of his people throughout the earth of loyal worshippers and followers of the living and the true God and he brings back the inheritance he brings back the land um, promise the land grant the meek shall inherit what? the earth and delight themselves in the abundance of peace Psalm 37 and and Matthew 5 the meek shall inherit the earth there will be a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells and that's what God designs to do and he designs to do it through covenant because the covenant is the very framework of the saving activity God is engaged in in bringing back a cursed world to blessing a fragmented world to unity an idolatrous world to faith a world of sin to a world of righteousness. We grab hold of that and we value the covenant themes we find in Scripture. So I hope I've answered the question that's on the board and God willing next week we'll take up a new question. <laughs> Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for this time that we can spend together in your word and call to mind these things. And Lord, we marvel at the unity of the Scriptures. We marvel at these themes that you have established early on in the account of your creation works that they continue even into the apostolic times they continue into the work you're doing in the world today because Lord you are bringing about a new creation for this we marvel we marvel we're part of it all we marvel that we have an inheritance in this new order in this new world that you will bring when Christ Jesus returns and we're thankful Lord that we can be a people that live in confident expectation we can say to as Abraham did how shall I know that I will possess it and your word demonstrates how we can know that you are the God who will sooner die than to fail in the fulfillment of your promise in fact you are the God who in, in incarnate humility died that this covenant might be fulfilled that Jesus spilt the blood of the covenant that these promises are certain they are yea and amen in Christ Jesus and Lord, we bless you and we thank you. Pray your blessing would be with us now as we greet one another, as we have a time of fellowship. Bless us as we enter into the morning hour of worship. We'd ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.